They sing no songs in hell, nor do they celebrate heroes. For silent is that dismal realm, and cheerless. But the story of the Gjallarbrew, and the god who defended it, is whispered across the nine worlds. And when a new arrival asks about the one to whom even Hela bows her head, the answer is always the same. He stood alone at Gjallarbrew. And that answer is enough. I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold, episode 7 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, the episode I have been waiting for since we started. (laughs) This is going to be something. I can just tell by the crackling energy that's coming off of you. (laughs) (laughs) So today we're going to be covering what we've been leading up to for a lot of the show already. I think since about episode four, maybe, or three, which is Thor going into hell to retrieve the lost souls that were taken when Malekith uh, had a bunch of mortals eat the fairy food and thus become his slaves. Their souls all went to hell, and Thor will have none of that. So this is a smaller story than certainly the war with Surtur that we covered, but I think in a way it's a lot more intense. It really is. I mean, not just Thor, but all the Asgardians are in this really raw space. They all discover that Odin is gone. You know, the Rainbow Bridge has been destroyed. In many ways, they are men with nothing left to lose. And this is a very personal journey for Thor, not only because of his connection to Midgard and, you know, wanting to rescue the mortals, but also because he wonders if Odin is going to be there when he gets there. And I would imagine he can't decide whether he wants Odin to be there or not. Right. Oh, man, there's so much emotional complexity. There's so much of that glorious Simonsonian subtlety. A side note, if uh, anyone ever starts calling things Stokesian, I will know that I've made it. Also, now I want a Walter Simonson Museum called the Simonsonium. (laughs) I would totally go there. I feel like it would have a lot of dinosaur skeletons and a lot of space Vikings and a lot of really elaborate helmets. And a lot of sound effects. Uh, Yes, of course. (laughs) Oh, that would be great. Uh, But anyway, before we dive in too much, Elizabeth, how are you? I am good. I survived Geekcraft Expo PDX and I'm relatively all here. How about you? I'm uh, doing pretty well myself. I just dropped my father and stepmother off at the airport this morning. They were here for about a week. And in fact, one of the things we did was to check out Geekcraft Expo, which was rad. I got my partner a really cute plush bat, and I got a good friend of mine a neat print, and it was awesome. Thank you. I, of course, had to pick up some loot as well. I got a cool Wonder Woman purse and a necklace that was inspired by Inara of Firefly. And, oh, I should show you, I got these really cool Thunderbolt earrings because they look just like Storm's earrings. That's rad. I love everything about that. And that ties in with the show we're doing right now because lightning. So doubly awesome. Also, I want to point out that you have a father and a stepmother just like Thor. That's true. (laughs) They're like Odin and Frigga in a couple of ways, at least. (laughs) Well, anyway, um, yes. So we are here to do this episode that I've really been I've seriously been waiting for this from the start. And I hope we can do it justice. We are certainly going to do our Asgardian damnedest. Yes, so let's get started. 
So we're going to be doing Thor number 360 to 362, and it's just three issues. Normally we do four, that's just how the storyline ended up, but I have a feeling we're still probably going to go over because this is just jam-packed with glory. Like, this is Simonson at the height of his powers. It really is. And again, like, it's inevitable that we compare this to Cert War. But even though Cert War was so much bigger, it's like it was readying us for this because not only is it super epic, it just has so many emotional punches to throw at us. Exactly. It's smaller in scale. And so we can focus more on individuals, on feelings, on decisions, on the fates of the few who go into and do or do not make it out of hell. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So we'll start out with Thor number 360 into the Valley of Death. Now, when last we left our heroes, they were going through a portal in Central Park from Midgard, Star Earth, to Asgard, because of course they'd been stuck after the war with Surtur on Earth since the Rainbow Bridge was shattered. So here we just see this giant portal full of hundreds and hundreds of Asgardians, and I have to say I love that they are all in full battle gear still, including their hats, so it's just this sea of amazing hats. Oh man, so many spikes and horns and blades and little propellers, I would assume, on at least a couple people. It's like the most amazing cosplay convention ever. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and the Einheriar, who are of course the fallen honorable mortal dead, the humans who are badass enough to be brought into Valhalla as immortal warriors, they're carrying a bunch of crates that they didn't come in with, and we'll learn what's up with that in a little bit. But what I really like here is that Fandral the Dashing and Hogan the Grim pull the other member of the Warriors 3, Volstag the Enormous, through the closing portal. He's still wearing his I Heart New York shirt. He barely fits through what little remains of the portal. And they are, in fact, coming directly from the Power Pack story that we mentioned last time. Yes, I love that they posit that perhaps his bulk was the only thing that was keeping the portal from collapsing. <laughs> I also like the spithoom sound effect as he pops free and the portal smacks shut. Make way, you puny warriors. The Lion of Asgard hath returned to his den. Fullstag, never change. Just, just keep on being you, bud. There's just a panel of him just laying there, you know, which is ridiculous, but also has a certain majesty because Volstagg just makes it work. See, now I just want to see a bunch of classical paintings, but instead of being of a bunch of naked ladies, it's just a Volstagg and his I Heart New York shirt. <laughs> I would pay to do that. And you know what? To bring it back, I think you could find someone at Geekcraft Expo who would paint that for you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we have a year to make that happen. So it's true. I'll pick it up in a year. Perfect. Now, most of these warriors, most of the people coming through the portal, remember, they don't know what happened in Asgard. They don't know that Asgard has fallen, and they don't know that Odin, their, the lord and all-father of Asgard, is gone. And Thor addresses the gathered masses and introduces Frigga, and she thanks them all for their valor, but tells of the loss of much of the city, and... O warriors weeping for your mates who shall not return from earth. O children crying for your fathers and mothers who shall not see Asgard's majesty again. Know that Frigga shares your grief. And she tells them that Odin, her husband, and the ruler of Asgard is gone. And I love this narration here. It just gets across the mythological majesty and gravitas of this moment. And for the space of seven heartbeats, not a sound is heard across all that great plain. 
I'm sure there's a term for when mythology does this, for when it gets very specific about things like this. I mean, seven heartbeats? How long is that? Whose heartbeats? Are they Volstagg's heartbeats or Hildy's heartbeats? But it doesn't matter. That just makes it, again, like so much in this arc, very personal. It's like everybody in this grand square in Asgard is one entity reacting simultaneously, reacting in the same way with the same measure of loss and grief and honored silence. Yeah, I like how you put that. It's true that Odin's loss, I wouldn't say death, I guess, because technically he's not dead, but his loss really unites the Asgardians in a way that we haven't seen yet. And I do love the way that Frigga and Thor address everyone. I mean, of course they're not they're not flippant about this. They give it time to breathe. They know how everyone's going to react. And I don't know. I, so often in the movies, for instance, we see Thor as this sort of goofy, jovial fellow. But here, yeah, he really gets that solemnity and that wisdom across. Yeah, I feel like he and Frigga are such a good team. It just makes me wish that they could just team up and rule together. You know, Frigga could be the wise person at home and then Thor could be going off on adventures and coming back when she needs a warrior. Yeah, I mean, in social psychology, in any group, you're going to have the task leader who keeps people on track and the social leader who sort of unites them as far as morale and interpersonal interaction. And here we could have the wisdom leader and the ass-kicking leader. Yeah, ass-kickers of Asgard. (laughs) (laughs) But Thor does say that until a new leader is elected, and sidebar, so it's an elected monarchy? That's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be better than our recent election. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. But yeah, he says until a new leader is elected, then Frigga will remain Asgard's caretaker. And for now, there's another fight waiting. They just got back from fighting the fire demons in New York. But now there's something else. Yes, Thor tells them of the mortal souls stolen by Malekith and sent to Hela. And he says, All around us, Asgard lies in ruins, and the gods must attend to her hurts. But mortal souls cry out to mortal souls and beg release. I am the guardian of Midgard, and I will not rest until they are free. Hear me now, you Einherjar. Mortal heroes chosen by the Valkyries to live in glory in Valhalla. Will you ride with me to hell to thwart the will of Hela and set free the souls of your fellows? Will ye ride with the mighty Thor into the Valley of Death? And the cry of ascent shakes the foundations of the Nyan world, and in hell, even Hela pauses a moment at the echo. Nobody can cheer like Asgardians cheer. But I guess this makes sense. I mean, they're coming back from this grand victory, the biggest Asgard in some ways has ever had, to find that the center of their civilization, and even that civilization itself, are lost. And so when they're given an opportunity to have one more righteous cause to channel that sorrow and that lingering victory from the previous battle into glory, like, of course they're going to do it. Specifically, these are, like Thor says, mortal heroes. The Anheriar were themselves mortals. And so they especially would have an interest in rescuing other mortal souls, the ones that Malekith damned to hell. I like that take on that. I hadn't thought about that with the Anheriar being mortals as well. But yeah, I mean... They have to have all this pent-up energy and rage, you know? They just had this big battle that should have been a victory, and instead it's turned to ashes in so many ways. Exactly. So everyone begins preparing, or at least preparing to prepare. And Harakin, he of course is the leader of the Anhariar, he shows Thor what was in those big crates. It turns out it's the military assault weapons that he got from his buddies in the army that he teamed up with against Surtur in New York. 
And I have kind of conflicting feelings about this. Like on the one hand, you know, the Asgardians having machine guns is hilarious and awesome and wonderful. On the other hand, I kind of worry that, you know, the Asgardian culture is being corrupted by, you know, gun violence. But really what struck me is this is just like a kid mashing up their He-Man and G.I. Joe toys, which I can fully get behind. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that's something that we see Simonson do a fair bit of in his run is just to take Thor and sort of bring it up a adjacent to other genres. I mean, we've seen the fair folk, we've seen space opera stuff, we've seen deep Norse mythology, we've seen Silver Age superhero-y stuff, we've seen communist fighting even. And so here we have just another thing that doesn't typically show up in Asgard, but Simonson's going to make it happen. He's going to show us every possible genre facet of these space Vikings. It's almost like he's taunting us. He's like, I'm such a good writer. I can put anything together and you're going to love it. And he's right so far. Oh, and the next episode, we're going to cover possibly the ultimate example of Simonson going, can I make this work? Yeah, I can totally make this work. (laughs) So Thor sends Agnar to fetch Baldur since Baldur knows the way back out of hell. Agnar says he won't fail Thor. The Lady Sif nearby asks if Thor is sure that he won't fail Baldur. She is clearly still bitter about him striking her in the issue we covered last episode where he was brainwashed by Lorelai. And he offers no excuses, but since he can't undo it, he leaves. He kind of just gives up. Okay, so Thor, you have step one of a good apology, which is not, you know, turning it back on the person who you've wronged. But step two is to take responsibility. Dude, you could do so much better than this. Yeah, to me, it's, you know, it was surprising that Sif has been mad about this for so long. And it just seems to be this kind of implacable rage that just keeps coming out in spurts. And, you know, in reading this issue and thinking about it, I realize it's because Sif isn't just upset about being hit. Like, this is kind of bringing up all the baggage of their past relationship. Exactly, yeah. And I'm of two minds about this, because of course, Sif shouldn't be a perfect paragon of virtue, good sense, and prudence. I mean, that's Frigga right there, anyway, that that role's already taken. But, you know, at the same time, because there are so few sympathetic female characters in Thor, it feels a little weird when she does get petty about something like this, especially about something that is so typically within the realm of female characters in the Silver and Bronze Age. And I don't mean to keep harping on the same issue, because I know we've brought this up many times before, but it does strike me every time that you know, Sif is essentially the representative of female heroics in this comic. She's kind of the only one since Frigga is sort of a uh, background, more peaceful character. And this is a book about, you know, punching and stuff. Sure. And I totally felt that. But at the same time, like we were talking about earlier, what's interesting about Sif is kind of she had this disdain for Midgard. And through her relationship with Beta Ray Bill, she really started seeing how mortals can understand more about emotions and loss and things like that because they have such short, you know, time frames to live, you know, unlike immortals. And this does give her a really interesting story of someone who is growing and changing kind of painfully, you know, as an immortal. I I definitely agree with that there. Yeah. I mean, Asgard interacts with Midgard. It doesn't just have its own culture. It doesn't just have its own way of looking at the world because it sees how mortals do things. And sometimes that manifests in, for instance, the army giving the Unharrier a bunch of assault rifles. And sometimes it manifests in Sif starting to reevaluate the way she's been looking at the world and at interaction with her fellow beings 
because she has fallen in love with a mortal, albeit a horse-faced Corbinite. An exceptional mortal. But Heimdall thinks she's being unreasonable not to forgive him. Yeah, Heimdall, of course, is Sif's brother. And so we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to Sif and Thor's interaction throughout this arc. But I do want to say, you mentioned that uh, Agnar went off to find Balder, since Balder knows the way into hell. And... Yeah, Balder right now is with Carnilla, the Norn Queen, because after the battle with Surtur, part of the deal for Carnilla bringing her forces into the war was that Balder was going to become her consort. So once again, he's getting pulled back into action, and we're going to see what happens with that in Balder the Brave number one, which thanks to our awesome Indiegogo supporters, we're going to be covering that miniseries. That'll be in a couple episodes. Suffice it to say, Agnar will indeed bring Balder back. We'll get to the specifics in that episode. In the meantime, Thor and Frigga speak in Odin's hall. Frigga already knows Thor's ulterior motive. Which is to find Odin, because if Odin has died... Maybe he's in hell. Maybe Hela has claimed him. She already made clear her intent to do so. So this is sort of a second reason for Thor to go into hell and to bring the Unharrier as well and Balder into that dark realm. Maybe Odin can come back. Maybe even though Thor has kind of made peace with his father's loss in his uh, adventures in the icy wastes with Tiwaz, but if he can bring him back, then he certainly will not complain. I doubt he is in Hela's waiting arms, Thor. Your father was ever true to me in his heart. Odin would not have deserted me for her. Oh, man, Frigga. Like, I just keep coming back to the word dignity for Frigga. Like, she's clearly a creature of a great deal of quiet passion and dedication, and yet everything is just so subdued but intense at the same time. I love the way Simonson writes her and draws her, for that matter. Yeah, she's like the ultimate dignified female character, dignified, powerful, and wise. So Ah. good job, Walter Simonson. Uh, Later on, she's going to be one third of the collective all mother of Asgard. And she's super great, even if she's drawn by people who aren't Simonson. Wow, that's cool. It's pretty rad. (laughs) Thor, however, is here in Odin's Hall, not just to speak to Odin's wife, to his stepmother, but to get Odin's runes because... He wants to talk to the dead. He wants to talk to those who have gone into Hela's dark realm and figure out exactly how to get out of Hell. Between that and Baldur's knowledge, that should do it. And on Hlidskjalf, he casts the runes. Into the teeth of the howling storm, I cast the runes of Odin, the runes of life and death. Twelve I cast. Angerboda I call, mother of three monsters, witch whom Hela hath summoned long ago. Rise from your tomb and walk again in the land of the living. And she appears, and Angerboda is such a cool-looking character. She is a beautiful woman with the the runes turned into her necklace, who speaks only because she's bound, but she has this amazing sort of head cage. It's not a crown and it's not a hat. It's It's like a necklace for your head. You're going to have to look at it. And and a circle around her eye, and she just looks beautiful and awesome. And you were mentioning that despite Walter Simonson's claims that he was nervous about drawing female characters, which is why he based them off of specific celebrities, uh, that you didn't think that fit into that statement at all. Yeah, like I think this is a really good example of a female face that is in Walter Simonson's style, and it looks very natural and organic to his work. 
without any sort of detectable reference, which I think is cool. Yeah, Angerboat is such a cool design. So in mythology, I looked up Angerboat because the name rung a bell. So she's a really impressive uh, giant lady. Of course, giants aren't just big people, but they're like a specific race of usually enemies of Asgard in mythology. And when Thor calls her mother of three monsters, that's because, technically, she is the mother of Loki's three children, those being Hela, the Fenris Wolf, and the World Serpent. That doesn't really come up here, but it's a nice little nod. It's another example of Simonson just bringing in as much mythological stuff as he possibly can. So this mean when Lorelai was asking Loki about his wife, she was talking about Angerboda? You know, I think that may have been the case. I don't know if Lorelai knew the details or what, but Loki certainly didn't want to talk about her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my ex, you know, my old ball and chain, she comes up and she screams about her runes. And <laughs> exactly. But here, Angerboda does reluctantly speak with Thor. Seek in the shadows of the hellhound, Garm, for the entrance. Black the entrance, blacker still the journey. Nine days' ride will bring you to the river Gyal and the bridge Gyalbru. Modgood guards the bridge, and Hellgate lies beyond it. Unwilling I have spoken, I would say no more. Every single thing in Norse mythology sounds metal as hell. Absolutely. <laughs> so Thor releases her, but of course... Being this is Norse mythology, she goes all corpsey and tries to kill him. And so he shatters her with Mjolnir. That is, in fact, the sound effect, shatter, which I love. And suddenly the runes are back in their sealed chest, not around her corpsey neck at all. And she's gone. And this does seem like a very Thor-like way of interacting with magic. The spell has gone wrong. This corpse lady's covering my mouth, so I can't tell her to be banished. I'm just going to smack her with a hammer, and that's going to be fine. You were talking earlier about how uh, Thor's hammer is kind of all-purpose in many ways. It's kind of like, oh, you we need to do this? Thor's hammer can do it. It kind of reminds me of this thing back in college. So I worked on the computing services work crew. At my school, everybody had a job working for the college in some way, and that was what I did. And for some reason, we had this adjustable wrench that someone crammed a rusty nail through while we were cleaning stuff up, and we ended up keeping it for years, and it was just called the murder weapon. And, you know, we were able to use it for some for some purposes like it was a usable wrench but we somehow decided that the only verb you could ever associate with it was murder so you would like you know murder a bolt open or <laughs> murder this door shut or whatever <laughs> that's great i love that so it's kind of like that yeah sure uh, except much more mystical and made of uru and that sort of thing and so anyway thor now knows how to get to hell Angerboda's advice told him that Baldur's going to help him with the other details and will help him get back since Baldur's the only being to ever come out of hell. And so that mission is getting ready to go. But there are other Asgardians who uh, were involved in the recent conflicts in various ways, two of whom haven't seen each other in a while, specifically Amora the Enchantress, that's Lorelai's elder sister, and Heimdall, the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge that doesn't really exist anymore. So Amora approaches Heimdall, saying that his duties ended now that the Rainbow Bridge is shattered, so now they have some time to get to know each other. But just as they're going on their first romantic walk, they're interrupted by Scourge the Executioner. And Elizabeth, I know you're more familiar with Old Avengers than me, so maybe you should talk a bit about Scourge and Amora and what their deal has been. So in the original Avengers, the Enchantress was 
pretty much a straight up unambiguous villain. She was a schemer. She was always trying to trick Thor or get him to fall in love with her or whatever evil scheme she had. And the executioner was basically her lapdog. You know, he was a big, strong, not terribly bright guy who was in love with her. And so he was just sort of this pathetic character. And here, of course, he is still deeply in love with her. He has just, you know, gotten back from Midgard. He's found that Odin is gone. And even though, you know, he's more on the villain side, so he probably doesn't have that deep feeling of allegiance to Odin, everything's gone. And he probably just wants to get some comfort from the Enchantress. And she will have none of it. She takes him aside privately to speak with him and then just casts a spell to have tree stumps grow around his legs and to silence him so he can't cry out. And she goes back on her walk with Heimdall, telling him to not worry about it. Scourge just went somewhere else in the woods. I mean, she's just so dismissive of this person who clearly lives entirely for her. It's really sad. I mean, it's not so much that Scourge is unintelligent as just that he's very, very dedicated. The Enchantress is his life. Although, I'm not sure how smart he is. He must at least be very literal, because he's a guy who fights with an axe, and his shirt has a picture of an axe on it. I don't know, that seems a little on the nose, or on the shirt, anyway. He's got very specific branding, okay? Uh, You know, branding's (laughs) important. That's a good point. But you're right. The way the Enchantress treats him is so dismissive and so cruel. The Executioner is someone who she knows is completely under her power, forevermore so she doesn't need to treat him with respect or even a speck of kindness because she knows he will always come back for more and this is going to be particularly relevant because the executioner i mean we'll get to it and if you've read these issues you know exactly what we're talking about but he becomes pretty important over the course of this story but in the meantime agnar has gotten back from his stint in balder the brave number one with balder who's now super thin and fit and muscly but still wearing his awesome uh, outfit with his cool head fins on yeah i'm liking this hunky balder i'm hope just hoping that carnella got some more of this hunky balder before he had to come back to asgard oh so much happened there was a training montage in carnella's front yard and they probably listened to a bunch of like survivor or whatever and there was boulder lifting like in turkish star wars which if you haven't seen you should and i can't really describe it because it's too weird it was good stuff you're the best around (laughs) nobody's gonna get you down except i think you might have to modify it (laughs) thou art the best around We should do that. We should get a bunch of songs and convert them into Asgardian. Into the bizarre, <laughs> like, old English Shakespearean that for some reason Vikings speak in in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sounds dignified. It's cool. Exactly. So, Baldur's back, but he talks to Thor because Baldur's been to hell, and it was not a good experience. It almost ruined him. I mean, we saw that for issues and issues and issues. And he asks whether Thor really wants to do this. Specifically, he tells Thor the rest of his story that nobody has heard. You remember that Volstag told Agnar way back at the beginning of Simonson's run about Baldur going to hell and having to escape. Baldur here finishes that tale, and the way this is visually portrayed is so cool. Yeah, it is really cool because... Uh, Baldur's flashback is depicted in, on the page in all these uh, greens and blues exclusively. And then you see Thor and Baldur kind of superimposed on top of it in color, kind of like a color form as Baldur tells his tale. So apparently what happened, we know that he saw all of the people he had ever killed when he went to hell. And seeing that turned his hair white, what we didn't know until this point, what we didn't know fully until Balder is telling Thor and thus the reader about it, is that 
she resurrected every one of those warriors, and Balder had to kill every one of them again. He had to kill thousands of undead warriors that he already felt such horrible guilt over slaying. That was what turned his hair white. That was what nearly ruined him. That was what made him swear off violence forever and seek to end his own life. What Hela cruelly did to him, because that's her style. She jealously hoards souls, and she wanted Baldur. She knew that if he died in hell, if he died fighting his thousands of undead warriors, then he'd be hers. So yeah, I feel like this is the first time Baldur has really told Thor the exact consequences, not only for Thor, but for everyone that Thor is going to bring to them. And it, it does make me feel a little uneasy. I mean... Thor did say originally, before Odin was gone, that he intended to go back there and retrieve the mortals. And, of course, all the Asgardians know, you know, that the job is to retrieve the mortals, and they've said yes. But at the same time, Thor does kind of have this unspoken ulterior motive, which is to pursue Odin and to kind of finalize his grief that way. And in a way, it's kind of taking advantage of all the Asgardians' grief to do this and and it's serious stuff, like, this better work. But at the end of the day, Balder asks Thor if he wants to do it, and Thor says, I have given my word, Balder. I will go into hell, if I have to go alone. And Balder replies, I knew your answer, my dearest friend, and one at least shall ride with you into the darkness. And Thor says, Then let the hordes of hell beware! And it is sunset. Thor says goodbye to Frigga, who sadly says she fears that Thor will be unsatisfied when he only finds the mortal souls. And she's not the only one to meet up with Thor as he heads off at the beginning of this mission, because the Lady Sif also appears. She asks him why did he strike her, first of all, but also why did he let her leave him and go off into the cosmos with Beta Ray Bill? And Thor says, Love is the answer to both questions, Sif. I could not hold you from going with Bill when he and his quest were what you needed most. And my love for Lorelei was so all-consuming, so all-enveloping, that I would have done anything for it. But that love was false. A spell wrought of magic. Perhaps that made it all the more potent. Now, like all magic, it has faded into nothing. But the consequences remain. And Sif asks if he ever loved her, and he says he truly did, but Odin took all certainty with him when he died. That's kind of poetic, but it also makes sense for Thor. I mean, he's been forced to reevaluate so much, so much of what he thought about the world. Odin was the center of his existence. Odin had always been there. And in addition to having been brainwashed by Lorelai, having watched his father die, all the stuff he's been through lately, I can see him being on shaky ground. And honestly, I give the guy some credit for admitting, dude, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I feel. And that's not what Sif wants to hear. She brings up Bill, asking if Thor is going to bring him into the all thing where they elect their new leader. And you can see she's kind of bringing it up under a credible pretense, but it almost feels like she's just bringing up Bill to be petty. Like, well, you're not going to give me what I want. Maybe I'll go back to Bill, which again... I don't want Sif to be a perfect character. You know, I'm not really saying this as a criticism of her. It makes it more interesting. But it is kind of disappointing that she just had this lovely goodbye with Bill where she was going to leave to be with Thor. And now that things aren't turning out the way she wanted. She's bringing Bill back into the picture again as a fallback. Right, exactly. And, you know, we'll see some resolution here, but for now, it's it's not a great look on uh, Sif or on the still-hasn't-accepted-the-consequences-of-his-actions, Thor. 
So Thor has talked to Frigga on his way out. He's talked to Sif. And there's one more somewhat unexpected character that the Odin son meets up with. Scourge finds Thor and declares that he wants to come along. And Thor sees in Scourge the Executioner a kindred spirit, having lost someone he loved, being unsure of the place of his own heart. And so he says yes. One of Asgard's most frequent foes from comics past is now on the expedition with Thor, Balder, and the Unheriar. And they meet the Unheriar and charge forward, led by Thor in his goat-pulled chariot. And this is a really cool panel that ends this first issue. It reminds me a great deal of all the Asgardians charging across the Rainbow Bridge to go to Midgard to fight Surtur, but it's much more zoomed in. There are fewer characters. Instead of, like, two Thunder Gods between Thor and Bill, there's just one. There's no Sif. And that really does reflect the smaller, more personal scale and stakes of this adventure. Yeah, it's like it's concentrated. It's been boiled down for all ultimate epic. And that brings us to Thor number 361, the middle chapter of this amazing story, The Quick and the Dead. So Thor rides up to the gates of hell and is confronted by Garm, who is a huge red wolf on a chain. And I do love this because the narration that the issue opens with is actually straight out of the poetic Edda, straight out of one of the only actual documentations of Norse mythology. Garm bays loudly before the Gnipa cave. His chain will break and he will run free. Yeah, because when Garm breaks free, that's going to be one of the deals of Ragnarok. Well, sort of, because there's some ambiguous stuff here between the wolf Garm, the hell wolf, and the Fenris wolf, one of the children of Loki. In some versions of mythology, they're distinct. In other versions of mythology, they're the same entity. But my favorite story about the Fenris wolf, who may or may not be the same as this guy, is that the Asgardians were trying to bind him in some kind of a chain because he kept growing and getting fiercer and more dangerous, and he would break free of every chain they tried. So they got a really special chain that the dwarves made with all these things that don't exist, like the breath of a fish, and stuff like that, uh, and they wanted to get Fenris to put it on, he was suspicious, and so he demanded that one of the gods, Tyr, put his hand in, in Fenris's mouth in order to prove that it wasn't a trick. Well, it turned out it was a trick because the chain was unbreakable being magic, so the Fenris wolf bit off Tyr's hand. That's why the god of war only has one hand. And so, yeah, that's uh, seldom mentioned, but it's a fun little story about maiming because you lie to a big wolf about a magic chain. <laughs> well, here Garm greets Thor, but warns him that those who enter do not come out again, and Thor replies, The blood of Thor shall not easily stain your breast, Garm, like the blood of so many others who sought to leave Hela's realm. With your permission, we would enter her domain. I shall make the arrangements for our departure. And Garm lets them pass. So they enter the hallway, which is this dark, endless cave path. Yeah, it's spiraling ever downward, like that one part of Silent Hill 2 or that other part of Silent Hill 2. And it's really cool. It's very different than the journey that they made out to space to fight uh, the fire demons who were assailing Beta Ray Bill's fleet in the first arc. It's very different than heading into Midgard and immediately being confronted by all these fire demons and having big battles in the sky. This place is dark, this place is silent, this place is dead, and it is utterly without light until Thor ignites Mjolnir like the wizard of a party, giving them just enough light to see so that they don't lose their footing, and they ride for nine days and nine nights. Like, I'm trying to just imagine what that would be like, being in this place without sound, without life, without even light, 
only with the shuffling footsteps and only with a light from your leader's hammer to guide you along for freaking like a week and two days. That's got to be unnerving, you know? But it totally works because this is hell. And hell in Norse mythology is the place where there's nothing left. It's the place where there's no life, there's no hope, there's no passion. And these stories are so much defined by passion. That's just not here. Hell is empty. Hell is still. And if you go into it, you start to become that way as well. But after nine days, they do finally reach Yellerbrew, the bridge across the river Gjol, into hell. And here they are confronted by Modgood, a silent woman in an all-encompassing cloak. She just gestures them over the bridge. They are free to enter hell. Hell is not going to say no to more souls in her domain. So as they're crossing the bridge, they're getting their weapons ready because they expect to see Hela and instantly have a fight. But instead, they find a beautiful paradise. There are birds singing and sweet breezes and everything's green and gorgeous. Yeah, if hell is a lifeless gray realm, this is more like the Elysian Fields from another mythology entirely. This is natural paradise, and what they find in it is all of their lost loved ones. Wives, sons, daughters, friends, everyone who's fallen in battle or been killed in war, they're all here waiting to greet the Anheriar. And Scourge finds the Enchantress. She kisses Scourge and claims that she's there because Heimdall killed her out of jealousy because she told him that she would be true to Scourge. And Scourge is furious. He says he's going to make Heimdall pay. But Amora just asks him to leave the Asgardians and go with her because all that matters is that now they can be together forever. And they walk off and are gone. Then we cut back to Asgard, where Frigga and the Lady Sif walk through the Golden Realm, which is in the midst of being repaired. Someday, the destruction wrought by Surtur will be only a memory, Sif. And Sif replies, How can you, of all people, say that time will heal our wounds? You who have lost Odin. But Frigga says that Odin's loss was worth the price. Odin's first concern was the survival of the Nine Realms, and indeed, they did survive. I have only memories to console me, and the nights will be long. Yet I would not belittle Odin's sacrifice by wishing him back. I was his wife, now I am his widow. I am content. And Sif apologizes to Frigga for for bringing this up, says that the Asgardians are a proud race, and moves on to her own humiliation, to discussing that. I return to Asgard, Frigga, full of hope, full of life, and all seems turned to ashes behind me. I long to be gone. And after the all-thing, after the gathering to elect a new leader... That's what she plans to do. Just like after Thor lost his fight with Beta Ray Bill in that first arc, he was going to leave Asgard. This seems to be sort of the thing you do when you're ashamed or where there's a problem that doesn't really have a solution is you just go off. You leave the land you love, which, man, harsh. Yeah, I really feel like Sif was heartbroken when she and Thor broke up and she left on a grand adventure with Beta Ray Bill and kind of had time to figure out what she wanted and who she was. When she was returning to Asgard and she thought to, to Thor, she was triumphant. I really feel like she felt that she could come back to Thor on her own terms and instead, you know, was met with shock and humiliation and Odin's gone and just nothing has turned out the way she wanted and it can never be the way she wanted now. And Frigga's doing her best to offer steady advice and to describe the way she's handling her own loss with such 
uh, dignity and prudence. Man, I don't want to even give Frigga a hug so much as like a respectful, slow nod. I love Frigga. It's true. I definitely would not touch her without her permission. <laughs> that's right. I mean, you know, that's, that's a good idea in general, really. Of course. <laughs> uh, now, it's not just Frigga and Sif hanging out in Asgard because Volstag's children are all hanging out and playing, except for Hildy. She's waiting for her dad to return, and return he does. But not before uh, one of her siblings teases her about having a crush on Hogan the Grimm, and she punches the hell out of the sibling. And when Volstag comes back, he just starts pulling gifts out of his gloves and out of his tunic— Volstagg is such a great dad. Like, as much as he's sort of a goof and is perhaps a coward in battle, the narration seems to go back and forth on it. Like, you get the impression that he just has such love for his wife and his children, and it, like, this is what matters to him. Not battle, not glory, but just having a kick-ass family at home waiting for him. Yeah, he is a fun dad, and I love how he has the presents hidden all over his body and brings out a tiny Empire State Building and just all these delightful things which must be so exotic to his children. Hildy's still hanging back, but Hogan the Grimm silently comes up and offers her a baseball cap from Earth. And this is the baseball cap that Katie Power of the Power Pack gave to Hogan to give to Hildy specifically when Katie heard that Volstagg had a daughter. And I love that little connection because I love Katie Power and I love Gunhild and the fact that they now share a hat just makes me happy in my heart. And Hildy is delighted and hugs Hogan. Does Katie and Hildy, do they ever meet? You know, I'm not sure if the power pack ever ended up in Asgard or if Gunhild ever ended up in Midgard. I need to look that up because that would be like the greatest, baddest little girl crossover ever. Totally. If this hasn't happened yet, Marvel, you should make this happen. I'm pretty sure both characters are still around. This could be a thing. But back in hell, we come back to much the same situation that we left. All of these loved ones, all of these dead family members and friends are drawing all of the unharrier everybody off to go just be at peace and spend time with them and after these nine dark cold days of walking through the caves of riding through darkness this is everything this is everything that they would ever have possibly wanted and nothing like what they expected to see and the same goes for Balder, who sees his lost love, Nana, who died and was part of the reason he was in such a funk. And they go walking off as well. And Thor is interested to find that everybody's just walking off into the mist and disappearing in this beautiful land. But he himself is soon confronted by Sif. Sif, who is not dead, but who mentions to him that she didn't like leaving bad blood between them. And so she followed along behind the armies. And now she wants to do her best to apologize. I have come to ask your forgiveness for treating you so badly. And what better place to find you than in this happy place of reconciliation and love? I am ready to do thy every bidding. Indeed, milady. I think you may be just the one I have been looking for. For though the Lady Sif and I have had our differences, these words are not those of the proud shield maiden of Asgard. She would never love me in such a fashion, nor would I wish her to. And he hits her with a tree. <laughs> I was a little confused by that until you specified that Sif is the goddess of the harvest, because I couldn't tell by saying that he was referring to Sif or Hela being like a harvester of souls. You know, that's kind of awesome as well. Now I just keep thinking back to Harvester of Sorrow by Metallica. It's a good song. <laughs> but in fact, there is Hela. There is the goddess of death. She's been engineering all of this, so presumably whatever's happening with the other loved ones, it ain't good. 
So Thor swings his hammer once again, stripping away paradise and revealing that they are indeed in hell and that these dead loved ones are leading the Asgardians over a cliff to their doom. And in fact, Nana, Baldur's lost love, is trying to convince him to join her in death, but he eludes her grasp by flipping the hell away because he's really good at flipping. He is. And when he asks her why she tried to kill him, she says she killed herself because she was tired of living and she never loved Baldur. Oh, man. Harsh. Well, Thor turns to Helen. He says he's not here for the secrets of the dead. He's not here for anything except to get back the stolen mortal souls, the one that Malekith stole using his fairy food by feeding it to mortals, and thus the souls were sent to Hela herself. So he offers her a deal. They're going to wrestle, and if he wins, he gets the souls. If she wins, she gets him. So his wrestling with Ice Santa, a.k.a. Tiwaz, a.k.a. his great-grandfather, was really training him for this moment. And he didn't even know it. It's, it's those Simonson uh, foreshadowing bits that work so well. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Thor's no fool. He knows that if Hela touches him, I mean, she literally has the death touch, so he is screwed. But he's prepared for this. He knew something like this might happen. So he puts on these massive up-to-the-shoulder golden gauntlets, rips off part of his cape, and puts it over his face with two eye holes poked in it. He is covered head to toe, except for his presumably invincible Asgardian mullet. <laughs> well, of course, you don't mess with that. Not even Hela. So the battle begins, and quickly it appears that Thor is winning. But Hela's not one to go down easy. You were right, Thor. There is no warrior in all of Hell who could best you. Never has death been so near defeat. But Hela is no ordinary warrior, and mine are not a warrior's weapons. You force me to do what even I cannot undo. Raise your eyes, Thor, and see the hand of glory. And she slashes through his mask and through part of his face with one of her hands. He is a mess, and we don't see what happens. But the sound effects, Thor's body language from behind, this is not a good thing. But I was curious about Hand of Glory, because I knew I'd seen that phrase before. I think it was like a D&D &D item somewhere in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And so, with a bit of Googling, I found out that the Hand of Glory in our world, the real world, that refers to the severed hand of a man who's been hanged for murder, holding a candle made of that same man's own fat. Apparently, this was an artifact that could render all around it motionless, and the flame could only be put out with milk. This is all according to the Compendium Maleficar um, a witch hunter's manual from the early 1600s. But the part that's really interesting to me is the etymology of this mythology, which is a really fun combination of words to say, which is that Hand of Glory came from Man de Gloire. That's my terrible French accent, but it translates to Hand of Glory. That apparently was a corruption of Mandragore or Mandrake, because supposedly the Mandrake root would glow at night. So the one becomes the one becomes the one becomes the one, and a root turns into Hand of Glory. It's like a super crazy game of telephone. It kind of is. I mean, a lot of mythology is. And a lot of witch hunting, I would imagine. I, I mean, witch hunting sounds really cool. I'm sure it, it resulted in a lot of innocent deaths, and that sucks. But at least there was a book called The Compendium Maleficarum, which sounds really awesome. Boy, holding a candle made of the man's own fat. That is disgusting and awesome, and it kind of reminds me of Fight Club in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's a deleted scene. But anyway, yeah, Thor has had his face damn near torn off by Hela. He is in bad shape, and he's also 
aging very rapidly into a corpse. He is practically starting to turn to dust here. Hela declares that Thor must surrender to her, but he fights back. Never! For I have been the slave of another and hurt the one I love bitterly. In the name of my father, never again shall Thor be the slave to any creature. Sooner would I die a thousand deaths! And he snatches Hela's cloak right off her back. And she wails in rage and despair because we see that without her cloak, half of her body is dying or possibly even dead. Like, divided in half is her face. Half is the face of a normal-looking woman, and the other half is the face of a corpse. Yeah, she is hideous and pitiable as she begs for her cloak. And the art here actually reminded me of Barry Windsor Smith and his portrayal of Lady Deathstrike in the X-Men. I can totally see that, yeah. And in both cases, it evokes a similar feeling. It invokes a feeling of almost feeling sorry for this villain, of almost being embarrassed by other people seeing them this vulnerable, this broken down. Hela is clearly a being of great pride and great gravitas. And here, her her secret's being laid bare for her entire realm, for all of her foes. Not only is she dying moment by moment without her cloak, but everyone is seeing just how vulnerable she actually is. But Thor is using his last few moments of life to make his last stand, to really get Hela to submit, as he says... For now, I understand. You are the ruler here, but also the servant. And this cloak is your key. Without it, you are trapped here like your subjects. Ironic, is it not, that I who have destroyed mountains and leveled great cities can barely muster the strength to tear a scrap of cloth. But I will destroy it, Hela, if you do not abide by our bargain. Is the match over? Well, death... I do not hear your answer. You just see this. And Hela calls the match over. And she removes the curse from Thor. His face may be demolished, but he's no longer aging into oblivion. She has conceded defeat. And while Hela's servants prepare the mortal souls to depart from Midgard, Thor is once again approached by Nana. And she tells Thor that she only showed herself because Hela commanded it. And she pretended she didn't love Balder because she knew he would never leave otherwise if he knew the truth. She swears Thor to secrecy and heads off. This is very much like the whole, go on, boy, I don't like you, get out of here, from like the the end of movies. I feel really bad. I mean, she's probably right that Balder would have stayed, but God, to see the one you love, to be forced to try to kill him by the goddess of death, and then to have to lie and say that you never loved him? That's so harsh. That shows the strength of her love, and she even says she has to leave now before she changes her mind again. And this impresses Thor so much. He's so impressed by the the purity and the strength of her love. He realizes that his approach to getting Sif to forgive him has been on his own terms, and that he resolves that if he survives this, he'll go beg her forgiveness. And whether she forgives him or not, he's going to resolve to be worthy of that purity of love someday. Because that's what a real apology is. That's what real remorse is. It stops being about you. It becomes about the person that you've wronged. Even if you don't agree with their assessment of what happened, if you're really apologizing, that almost stops mattering. It's about validating their experience. And the Asgardians mount up to leave hell, but there's a moment where Balder sees Thor's wounds and is horrified. And I have to mention right here, 
We never see it. Like, as soon as this happens, Thor's face is kind of cloaked in shadow, and we only see other people's reactions to build this horrible picture in our heads. And it's very effective because just like, I don't know, I'll come back to the Reavers and Firefly again. Once you show something that horrifying, it loses its power. Otherwise, it's going to be in your imagination. It's going to be the most horrifying thing you personally could think of. And so just seeing Baldur's face as he looks in pity at what happened to Thor... The fact that we don't see that ourselves, we just see Thor wrap part of his cape around his face to mask the wound, that works well. Yeah, it's two very similar scenarios where faces that are ruined, but with Hela, it's treated like her great shame is that she is hideous and she's exposed and humiliated, whereas with Thor, I feel like he's kind of treated with a lot more respect and kind of wrapped up more, and it's kind of an odd treatment to me. I can see what you mean, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess the first th- place where one could go with that is that Hell is a woman and Thor is a man, and I'm wondering if the whole female beauty equaling female merit is playing into this. That's what I felt like it was to me, because again, like you go on about how powerful and dignified Hela is as a villainess, and it almost seems like a shame that she has to be so exposed that she's literally begging for her cape back from this big, strong man. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure how to uh, interpret this right here. I mean, it's certainly mythologically consistent that Hela is half-living and half-dead. I mean, you see uh, the character Mazikeen in Sandman, actually, who seems to be based off that myth. It's kind of the, the same deal facially. But it's an interesting take, and the fact that we have Thor's face all screwed up in, you know, the same page, even, as as what happens here, and we don't see that, it does kind of make you wonder, I, I guess, what the intent behind that was. I mean, I guess on one hand, it does make you think, gosh, Thor must look worse than Hela, which is very effective, like, for the imagination. True, yeah. I mean, Hela's already terrifying based on the way Simonson draws her, and if if we can't even see Thor compared to that, ugh. Well, beautiful or not, Hela is now gloating that leaving Hell will be more dangerous than Thor knows, and that she is resolved to win in the end. And that brings us to Thor number 362, Like a Bat Out of Hell. It's a silly title, but this right here, I'm going to go ahead and say this is my favorite comic book. This is my favorite issue of a comic book that I have ever read. Everything about this issue is amazing. Not just the fact that it showcases my favorite scene in all of comics, but it's just so perfectly crafted. This is your holy grail. That's so cool. It kind of is, yeah. And I mean, uh, there's so much to talk about here. Like, my notes for this issue are stupidly long, but it's worth it. It really is that good. Well, we definitely have to start with the cover, which is amazing and ridiculous, and it's just the most 80s combination I can imagine, because you see Thor and the Asgardians with Scourge the Executioner looming over them, shooting his machine guns. So as we open, Thor and the Einherjar ride on and come to the dock Nagelfar. And so this ship, Nagelfar, Nagelfar, I'm really not sure. This is one of the harder Icelandic uh, terms I've, I've seen. So apologies to anybody who knows the right pronunciation if we're getting it wrong. But this is one of the coolest, weirdest parts of Norse mythology. This is a giant longship docked in hell made from the fingernails of the dead. So every time a person dies, their fingernails are added as raw materials for this ship. And when this ship is finally ready. It will set sail with the armies of the dead and attack Asgard. This is going to be part of Ragnarok, the final battle, one of the signs of the beginning of the end of the world. 
Ew! Just the idea of a boat made out of fingernails. I just feel my entire skin crawling off my body. I mean, it's hell. It's a pretty gross place. Uh, I don't know if this is true, but I have heard that uh, that Norse parents would tell their children that they had to cut their nails because otherwise, if they died, then the Negelfar's launch would be hastened by that much and they would be responsible for the end of the world. This is totally the kind of boat that Howard Hughes would try to build toward the end of his life. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> Maybe he was. Maybe he had a, an underlying purpose to growing his fingernails so long. Ugh, now I'm wondering what he did with the jars of urine. Tan leather. Oh, probably that. <laughs> he can stretch it over shields. It would be, it'd be great. Uh, but I do like that we don't see the Asgardians' journey from when Thor defeats Hela to when they get to this ship. Just the same as that we don't see their journey from when they leave Asgard to when they get to the gates of Hell. Because you don't need to see that. You can just cut to the next big important thing that happens. There's no filler in this story. Yeah, I mean, if you're reading it in real time, you've got a month in between, so you can kind of imagine it. But yeah, I guess them just, and then they rode, and then they rode again, you know, wouldn't be as narratively impressive as as what we do get. Because this boat is impressive. Just because it's made of fingernails doesn't mean it can't be an awesomely imposing, helmeted, skull-capped longship. It's so big and detailed. It is huge. I mean, there are cranes moving things on the deck, and they look tiny compared to the overall mass of the ship. But the army rides across the slopes near the Nagelfar, across the rock bridges of hell, guided by Baldur, who knows the way. And one interesting thing here that I noticed my first time reading through and have noticed every subsequent time, there is a young woman in a new mutant's uniform like the X-Men training uniform, hanging out near one of the rocks below. Nobody notices her. She doesn't seem to notice them. What is going on here? And so I looked into it. Now, this issue came out the same month as the Asgardian Wars storyline in X-Men and New Mutants in the annuals that they had that year. All the mutants go to Asgard and the various other nine realms of the World Tree, so it makes sense that they might be around here. But the only character that actually goes to hell is Warlock, and that doesn't look like Warlock. I mean, I know Warlock can shapeshift, but... Typically, he doesn't shapeshift into a form like that. So I was thinking, who could it be? And I looked it up. I did some research. I did some reading. I just sat there thinking for a while. And I think I have an answer. In the Asgardian Wars storyline, Magma eats the food of the Fair Folk, and she gets transformed into one of the Fair Folk. She looks all elfy after that. And as we learned from the Malekith storyline here... If you eat the food of the fair folk, your soul is sent to hell. I mean, that's the whole reason that Thor and the Inheri are in hell in the first place right now, is to retrieve those souls. So it doesn't quite line up, because in the Asgardian Wars, Magma seems to have her own personality even after she's one of the fair folk, but it does kind of work, and it is a really cool example of various writers uh, coordinating with each other. Yeah, and the depiction of this character does look like Magma. And I remember reading that issue when she's eating the fairy food. It does look like she dies. So maybe there's some loophole because she was a mutant. She died for a minute and then came back. But eh, comics, everybody. Regardless, it is a super rad little thing because we love Thor and we love X-Men. And look, it's both. So we see Thor, and as in our previous issue, he has his cape kind of tied around his jaw. He looks kind of like Grifter, the Image Comics character. Oh, man, who later became a DC character, I think, right? I think they got the rights to him. Uh, yeah, I think Jim Lee created—don't quote me on that. I think Jim Lee maybe created him, so when he went back to DC with Wildstorm, that all kind of went back. Eh, who knows? Yeah. But regardless, Thor's wounds are still agonizing, and— Hela appears to mock him as he says, 
Mayhap in time, the agony will heal. And mayhap, Thor, you will always bear the agony to remind you of your rashness when you invaded Hela's kingdom. At which point, she teleports in Scourge and the Enchantress because in the Elysian Fields section, when the illusion was revealed by Thor's hammer, they never came back. So now Hela says they need to get gone as well. And Thor does say that Scourge has always been loyal to the Enchantress first, and Scourge agrees. I will stand beside her here against any that try to stop me. And Baldur says, But who stands beside you, Scourge? In this place, all things are Hellas, and nothing is what it seems. So Amora tells Scourge not to listen, but he knows that Baldur never lies, and so he axes her a question. Apparently Scourge's axe can cut through illusions, and he just hits Amora with his axe. He slashes the hell out of her. And I like this, because Scourge is madly in love with the Enchantress. He's getting everything he wants to be with her forever. But he knows that Baldur is that pure, even though Baldur has ever been his foe. Even though Baldur has been his enemy, he knows that Baldur wouldn't lie to him. And that's, that's pretty intense right there. What I love, again... Reading the Avengers, there's so many characters and they're kind of older comics, so you don't get into depth with any of these characters. But here in this book, you see Scourge kind of come to life. He blossoms into 3D and it's really cool. We see him as more than just this kind of love struck fool. He is a man with passion and dreams and intelligence. He is. And the woman beside him is not what she seemed to be. This is a woman named Mordana in a sweet Asgardian orange jumpsuit. Apparently an illusionist working for Hela who had play-acted to become Amora. And I'm pretty sure this is actually Mordana's only appearance. This scene and then when this scene is referenced in future issues. So I gotta ask... What's her deal? Like, how does she know Hela? How do they start working together? What's up with that? I think they probably went to evil boarding school together. That could be. Oh, or maybe they went to that uh, aerobics class that Sif and Dazzler taught back in the day that we were talking about. That's why they're so bitter and mad. They're like, why did you make us do so many squats? Now we're going to get you. Oh, man. Or maybe it was burpees. <laughs> burpees would inspire wrath in most people. But regardless, Scourge is ashamed, and he does his best to assure Baldur and assure Thor he didn't know he thought it was the Enchantress he was going off with. He never would have betrayed them for anyone but her. And Hela says he'll have to remain and sail on the Nogglefar with the rest of the dead and the damned. But not surprisingly, Scourge, as someone who has been abused by the Enchantress for so many years, he reacts really, really badly to this kind of emotional abuse. And I love the way he phrases this reaction because this is metal as hell. The ship of the damned, never! But you and your doxy Hela will regret that you ever played the executioner for a fool. For the axe of Scourge is deadly beyond measure. It can cut through the dimensions themselves to release the energy that binds the nine worlds together in this place. Now shall chaos reign in this spot as it did in the beginning. And he throws his axe at the ship of the dead itself. And for a moment, the barriers between the dimensions are torn asunder as the great axe cleaves the very fabric of infinity. The dead cover their ears and eyes, and the work of millennia is consumed by the catastrophic energy released. Then the rift is gone sealed by the very energy unloosed in its creation. 
hell still stands. But Negelfar is no more. And Hela is furious, but she blames Thor, not herself, when really I feel like she took a gamble and it went very, very poorly. She, at this point, I feel she should just cut her losses and go home. But I can understand her fury. I mean, this ship she'd been working on for millennia, it's gone. She has to start over, and she takes that anger out on Thor. She zaps a bolt of pure necrotic energy at him. She says that she swore she'd let him leave, but it'll be as a corpse! Which, I don't know if that loophole really works, but I'm not going to argue with Hela. Baldur's real quick, so he manages to dive in front and parry the blast, but even though he successfully parries it with his sword, his sword arm goes completely numb, and in fact, we're going to see that in a sling for a while. And it just happens quickly, one thing after another. She decides to kill Baldur since he's their only way out of hell. Agnar rushes to his master's aid, and Thor bwams Hela with Mjolnir as she's about to kill Agnar and Baldur. And while she's stunned, they do their best to get the hell out of here. And Baldur says, Come, heroes. Turn your horses' heads and follow me. The hellway lies before us, and we must ride it to freedom. Though all the powers of hell should seek to bar our way. And even as the Asgardians draw near, the rocks of hell begin to twist and writhe like living things. As from her Stygian depths, the realm of death disgorges the warriors of despair. Oh man, everything about this. This point onward in this issue is just perfection. The rock bridges and stalactites that the Asgardians had ridden across and under, they just sort of unfold into these forms, both varied and demonic, reptilian and insect-like, and some all too human. The very landscape is coming to life. Hela is using her entire realm to stop these warriors who have defeated her, to do her best to redeem her humiliation and have her vengeance upon them. And think about that. Think about fury so great that an entire world comes after your foes. It's like hell is boiling. Oh, God, it totally is. And a warrior tells Harrikan at the front of the Anheriar of the creature's rise, and I love his response. Then let them rise into the teeth of the storm. The Anheriar were born to fight, and I was born to lead them. This is our moment. The weapons we took from Midgard shall speak to Hela in a tongue she can understand. Close up the ranks, and on my signal, open fire! And we have an army of space vikings on horses, firing assault rifles at the very realm of hell having come to life in the form of an infinite number of undead demons. I'm not a big gun fan myself, but this is beyond badass. This is some of the most epic stuff I've ever seen in comics, and they just cut their way through. They get to the bridge of Gyalabru, where Modgud, the guardian who has guarded that bridge since the beginning of time, for the first time in history, turns and flees. That's how imposing they are. You really feel like they are doing the impossible. And even just seeing the bada, 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 bada sound effects, it's so cool and so disconcerting. Like, whoever thought you'd see a lot of gunfire in Asgard? But Hela is not done with them yet. She has one more trick up her stylish green sleeve. Ride, Asgardians. Ride! Though you ride for a thousand leagues, you shall not escape Hela and her Red Reapers. Come, you dead. Your mistress speaks. 
All those who were slain at the hands of the heroes of Valhalla, rise up! Those who the sword of Harakin claimed, those who fell beneath Sigmund's bright blade, rise up! The time of vengeance is at hand! And Balder the Brave knows exactly what this means, because this is what happened to him. Hela is now raising all of the dead who have been slain by every one of the Einherjar here. I don't even know how many that would be. Thousands, tens of thousands. But what Baldr went through, now all of them are going through as well. And this is masterfully done because we've heard Baldr's tale in a very personal way. We've seen the effect it had on him. For at this point like a couple years worth of issues we know how bad this is and so all of that narrative shorthand all of that foreshadowing is already in place for this single event the pacing stays incredibly fast we stay on the edge of our seats but there's this emotional weight that simonson has carefully crafted leading up to this we didn't even know this was what was going to happen how it was going to manifest but here it is holy crap and they're colored a solid red. Like, it's just this endless line of warriors. And coloring them all like that, it not only makes them super demonic looking, but just unearthly. They're faceless beings that look like they're never going to die again. So we know how much, you know, having to kill his fallen foes again, we know how much that affected Balder. What is this going to do to every warrior of Asgard that is there. You know, this is a moment with immense gravitas that has long been earned. Well, regardless, one of the advantages the Anharier have is a leader both inspirational and damned effective. As Thor cries, Anharier, follow me! We will break them here or die the real death! Up, Toothnasher! Up, Toothgrinder! Take to the air and carry the lightning of your hooves amid our enemies. We shall match the hammer of Thor against the shield wall of hell for Asgard! And in response to this, the crowd yells for Thor, too, which I thought was such a cool moment. One, it mirrored the end of Surtwar when Odin, Thor, and Loki teamed up. But also it just shows how Thor really has the hearts and minds of his men, and it's an incredible moment. And so they're through. They cross the River Gjol. They cross the bridge of Gjallarbrú, or at least they start to, because Thor realizes the armies of Hell are at their heels. Someone needs to stay behind and hold them off. Someone needs to sacrifice themselves, basically, so that the Unheriar can escape Hell with the souls that they've rescued. Thor's going to do it himself. He's ready to die. He is a hero. He is their leader. This is his responsibility. And in my opinion, maybe having not found Odin, he's got a bit of a death wish, but he doesn't get his chance because as he's giving his big speech, Scourge sucker punches him from behind and knocks him the hell out. And Balder and the rest are ready to kill him for his betrayal. They just figure he's shown his true colors and is on Hela's side after all. But Scourge explains... They made a fool of me, Balder. They laughed at me. Everybody laughs at Scourge. Hella, Mordona, even the Enchantress I love, they all laugh at me. Except you. Balder is too kind to laugh at Scourge. But whenever they laugh, I hurt inside. Maybe I die a little. Now, I think I am dead already. And my axe was destroyed with Nogglefar. So I will stay behind, and the last laugh will be mine. 
You and Thor have a drink when you are next to Asgard and laugh Scourge's last laugh together. I will hold the bridge. And silently, a panel zooms in on Baldur's hand, holding one of the assault rifles and passing it to Scourge. No words are necessary. Baldur has nothing he can say. But that one gesture says so much. That one gesture says that despite Scourge's opposition to Asgard, despite the fact that Scourge and Baldur have been enemies for so, so long, Baldur trusts him. And I can only imagine how much that means to Scourge. We've already seen how much Scourge respects Baldur, how much he knows that he would never lie, how he was willing to strike down the Enchantress because of something Baldur said. This is huge. We see here that Scourge feels he has lost... Everything. I mean, he mentions even his axe is gone. And again, I'm just so impressed how this sort of side character who was not exactly one note, but we didn't really get a lot of depth to him. Suddenly he is this tragic figure with a lot of weight to him. And as the Asgardians ride off and Scourge hefts a rifle in each hand atop the mountain of ammunition at his feet, the hordes of hell approach in the distance. There is thunder in the air. The thunder is louder now, and Scourge is waiting. Perhaps he has waited all his life for this one moment. As the warriors of death ride hard down upon him, the executioner turns his thoughts from the flowing blonde hair that always dances before his eyes and begins to do the thing he does best. And jeez, the carnage. This whole page... First of all, it's in like purples and pinks and oranges. It's just pure fury as the bullets are shredding the warriors and he's grinning. He's got a gun in each hand. It is the most amazing, you know, sequence we've seen yet. And the panels just zoom in more and more on Scourge's face on this this satisfied almost glee as he says. Come and get it, demons. Tis Scourge's last laugh. And though the executioner stands alone, and the warriors of hell seem numberless, not one sets foot upon the bridge across the river Gyal. This next page is my favorite page. I have a lot of favorites here. I bought the artist edition that IDW Publishing did of Walter Simonson's Run of Thor, and it includes um, high-quality scans of the original art at full-size, uncolored. You can see the art exactly as Simonson drew it. And when I turned to this page, I'm not going to lie, there were tears on my face. It's beautiful. The left two-thirds of it are a single vertical panel from top to bottom of the page. A scourge finally out of ammunition— having fired every bullet into the demon army, is just using his last functional assault rifle, the last one that hasn't been shattered, as a club. There are demons just clawing their way toward him, a literal sea of demons reaching up and beginning to overwhelm him. And the narration is what really sells it. They sing no songs in hell, nor do they celebrate heroes. For silent is that dismal realm, and cheerless... But the story of the Gjallarbrú and the god who defended it is whispered across the nine worlds. And when a new arrival asks about the one to whom even Hela bows her head, the answer is always the same. He stood alone at Gjallarbrú. And that answer is enough. 
And on the right third of the page are four descending panels of Scourge's face. And the colors and the the inks, they fade as they go down. And the final one is just a blank square. And that answer is enough. That Scourge, we don't see him torn apart. We don't see him fall. We just see him fade because Scourge the Executioner, he's fading into legend. He's fading into a legend even told in hell, even told in this realm where nothing is and nothing shall be. This character who's been a sidekick at best to a villain for years, he's lost everything. He's finally started to see just how small of a place he has in the world, how everything he thought he had, he actually didn't. And he's found a way to go out grinning, to go out laughing, to have the last laugh. He's gone out on his own terms. We talked in our episode about The Last Viking, about Aleph the Lost, about how Aleph got everything he wanted with his end. He got to fight alongside Thor and slay a dragon. He got to enter Valhalla. That was amazing. That was incredibly emotionally effective. This? This is like that squared. The Executioner's Last Stand is one of the most famous scenes in comics, and with good reason. It's, it's beautiful. You get the feeling, even in his past incarnation, that the Executioner wanted to be important. You know, he wanted to be important to the Enchantress. He wanted to affect change, even if it was bad change. He wanted to have an effect on the world. And here, he's probably one of the most important legends in Hell's history ever. So he went out like a Klingon, you know, and and he became so much bigger than his fantasies could ever have reached. And I think this really hits home because, like you said, Scourge wanted to be important. And I mean, crap, that's what all of us want, just to make a mark on the world, to matter, to not just be a person going through the motions to be born and live and die and be forgotten, but to actually be a part of the world, a part of that tapestry. And he succeeded. And as a sidebar, you were saying how this is one of the most iconic sequences in comics history. And it does look like perhaps the upcoming Thor Ragnarok is going to pay homage to it at the very least. That's true. There is a scene in the trailer of Carl Urban as the executioner firing a couple of assault rifles. So I don't know where they're going to go with that. I don't know how you could possibly echo this on the screen, but I guess we'll see. But that's Scourge. That's the tale of Scourge the Executioner. And he's been successful because Thor and his chariot, the Anahari, are mounted. The very souls they stole back from hell, they've made it across the bridge. They see the gates of hell in front of them. They see the Hellwolf Garm waiting for them, waiting to devour them. And, you know, Garm's giant maw is blocking the entrance, but Thor leads the charge, his face bandaged, his entire body crackling with energy as he bursts free, spins his hammer, and crack boom You know, Garm is down because I think after everything they've seen, after everything they've done, like, a big giant wolf is kind of no big deal. And I like that. I like that this encounter is over so immediately. Having this happen adjacent to the Executioner's death, that makes it clear how much more significant that was. And into the brilliant sunlight burst the riders of Asgard, filling their lungs with a fresh, clean air, and savoring the taste of freedom once again. And that's it. The mission has succeeded. They're free of hell. They have the mortal souls. They've lost one of their own, but saved everyone else. And so Thor says, with the rainbow bridge gone, 
He'll use the powers of Mjolnir to cut through dimensions, and he'll take the souls back to Midgard, back to where they belong. And Balder says he'll return to Carnilla, though he is sorrowful. After seeing Nana in Hell, Balder says, I begin to wonder if my touch is doomed to blight the lives of all I care for. The sword is an evil gift to the living. And Thor asks Agnar to go with Balder to look after him because the last time he was in a mood like this, he was literally ready to die. And we'll see more about what happens there in Balder the Brave, number two through four. And so Thor opens a portal with his hammer. He leads the carts of vaguely drawn and undefined souls through. I do like that we don't see specific people. We just see these sort of human-like forms. And that's it. The forest is empty. Everyone has returned from whence they came, and hell once again is silent. And if in the forest on the edge of hell the birds still sing, there is no one left to hear their song. Three issues, a single mission, and that's the story. That's the ride into hell, that's the executioner's last stand, Thor's face being nearly destroyed, the rescue of the mortal souls, the humiliation of Hela, knocking some teeth out of Garm the Hellwolf. Wow, I I love this story. I mean, is it as large scale as the Cert War? No, definitely not. I mean, that was realms against realms. But the sheer intensity we have, we have here, the personal stakes, the interactions between Balder and Nana, between Scourge and, well, everyone, it's... It's so beautifully done. This may be the highlight of Simonson's run. It really is for me. I mean, on this read-through, just because it is the relationships between the people and, as you said, the personal stakes that make it resonate with me so strongly. Like, I was on the verge of tears when Scourge was going down, you know? I felt his humiliation when the Enchantress dismissed him It brought it home. It made him feel like real people, which is hard to achieve, I feel, a lot in stories of an epic scale. Right. I mean, again, space Vikings, but space Vikings with hopes and dreams just like ours, just somewhat different ways of achieving them or longing for them. Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to go out in a grand blaze, you know, of glory anytime soon. That's probably for the best, all things considered. We'll (laughs) we'll leave those legends to Scourge. But what we cannot leave are, of course, what we bring you every episode, our Recognitions of Merit. And Elizabeth, I believe the honor of the first award goes unto you. What this arc is our Crack-A-Doom Award for the best sound effect. So for me, it was in issue 362, the kapow, kapow, blam, blam, When Scourge held the bridge. Now, I picked this for two reasons. One, because of the grand epic scale of that scene, but also because it is something completely unlike anything you would expect in a story about Viking space gods. You don't expect the butta 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 of machine gun fire. So the novelty plus the gravity makes this the winner. How about you, Miles, for Hell's Haberdashery or the very best headgear? Okay, so something I forgot when we were starting this podcast, when we were naming this category, is that Hela, that iconic headgear that she wears that I love so much, she doesn't actually wear it in Walter Simonson's run. Instead, she just sort of has this tight cowl around her head that just leaves the lower half of her face free. But what she does have is a great green cape, you know, the one that Thor ripped off of her, along with her cowl that has a collar... Okay, so you've seen Doctor Strange's collar, probably. Like, it's got these sort of curly, spiky bits at the corners. 
Hellas is that times a hundred. It has these reaching, grasping, almost claws of fabric coming up from the sides and the corners with these these broad but sharp angles. Like, it almost reminds me of the fingers of the dead clawing for the living. Later on, we'll see that coming from her hat itself, from her hood itself. Here, it's not quite... But I'm going to give her the technicality nonetheless. Now, one of our listeners on our forums, David M., actually pointed something cool out, which is that Jack Kirby, when he drew Hella in his run, he drew her differently just about every time. Apparently, Simonson is using Jack Kirby's design for Hella from Thor number 133, the look that I like, the one that Art Adams draws in the Asgardian Wars and we see all the time, uh, and apparently is going to be referenced in the new movie if the concept art is to be believed. That was from Thor number 150, so the more you know. I think this totally counts as headgear. I mean, it's in the vicinity of her head. It surrounds her head just because it's not attached to her head, you know. I mean, right. In Dungeons and Dragons, if you have an Ayun stone orbiting your head, then, as I recall, you can't really wear a helmet. Like, it sort of takes the place of it. So, good enough. Yeah, totally. Well, the next award we have, of course, is Whatsoever Holds This Hammer for the Worthiest Inanimate Object in This Arc. So this was a tight race, but I had to give it to Scourge's machine guns because, of course, this is one of the most epic moments in all of comics, and it was had a lot of emotional weight. It was drawn super cool. It was amazing. But I almost picked the drink that Thor and Balder will have to salute Scourge and laugh his last lap because that just makes me cry. Oh, man, I know. And it'll eventually happen. It'll be delayed, but it will eventually happen. We need to raise a glass to Scourge once this podcast is over, Elizabeth. Totally. Finally, with a title that is self-explanatory, we have our most metal moment. Miles, what did you pick? He stood alone at Galarbrew, and that answer is enough. Well, what else could it be? Next time, in Thor number 363 to 366, a fallen foe returns from oblivion. And an unlikely creature proves worthy of the power of Mjolnir. Curse the Beyonder. And finally, Frogthor. This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning Lightning and and the the Storm. The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! For Asgard!